Good morning again. Glad to see so many of you guys. Glad to see you guys online too. I wish I could see you guys. All right, so we're starting this new series. You can uh, open up to Genesis chapter 3 and Psalm 136. Those two places we'll get to eventually, uh, but it'll take a little while before we get there. A little bit different uh, approach this morning, and I'll, I'll explain that here in uh, just a few minutes. But we will be in Genesis 3 and Psalm 130, uh, 136. So this morning, we're going to really try to get the series going, uh, Things Too Wonderful, talking about the attributes of God. We're going to try to kind of get this going. Last week was something of uh, kind of the prologue, kind of introducing you to this idea. We looked at Job, and we talked about Job's reaction whenever God came to him and, and said, all right, you want to know something about me, then uh, brace yourself like a man, and I'll tell you something about me. Uh, and then he proceeds to go off for four chapters, uh, just letting Job know just how ignorant Job was um, uh, about the, the greatness of who he is. And, and Job's response was uh, that he, he, he covers his, his mouth and he says, you have spoken, I am not going to speak anymore. Uh, what you have revealed to me are things too wonderful for me. And so it is with us this morning. We are diving into the deep end of the theology pool this summer. Uh, we've said this for a long time at, at, at Providence. Maybe it's a little bit different now because uh, uh, of different ministries that aren't happening right now. But in the summer at Providence, it's not time to, 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 to step back. It's time to, to step in. And that's kind of what we're doing now. We are diving into the deep end of the theology pool. And whenever we talk about God, inevitably, we will be in over our heads very, very quickly. Uh, but we'll keep swimming and we'll see what we can learn and what we can find out. Uh, together, but before we set out on our uh, swim this morning, we kind of need to address a couple of things because I need to set the stage for you a little bit uh, this morning, uh, so that we can make sure that as we work together this morning, uh, addressing the, these uh, this topic and uh, and looking over these these texts, we want to make sure that we're on the, the same page. And what's going to be required out of this is that uh, this summer I'm going to have to preach differently, not just because there's a phone sitting right here that I have to talk to, but in general, the way I'm going to preach is going to be different than the way I typically uh, would. We've got to talk about how different the sermon series is going to be, and me preaching different will entail you, as good students of the Bible, to listen differently, right? So, so this is going to require something from you. You, will, you. you have to be active listeners because of the way we are going to be talking the way we are going to be uh, studying. It's a different way to listen for you and a different way to preach for me. And here's why. I usually preach from a perspective of what's called biblical theology. Now, don't get too lost in the words. Don't get too lost in this idea of what is biblical theology. Isn't all theology biblical? Well, yes, at least all good theology is biblical, but that's not really what's meant by this term. It's an academic term, uh, biblical theology, and this is what we do here on uh, Sunday mornings. And what it means is that typically we teach through the Bible. Typically we, we go through the Bible. The way I will preach it is I'm telling the story of what's happening, right? So even if it's not narrative, I'm explaining about Paul being in prison and who Paul is writing to and who John was addressing and what, what, what was going on in the church whenever John was writing this. And that's called biblical theology. 
the, the, the way that it works is you address the, the narrative that is uh, local, that is right there in the text, and then you take that narrative and you let that inform the larger story of Scripture, right? So you guys tracking with me? You take the, the, the narrow portion of what's happening in that text, you talk about that story, and then you back up a little bit and you say, all right, how does that story inform the bigger story? So what I do often is I will talk through a part, and then the second half of the sermon I'll say, and here's how this was addressed in the Old Testament, and here's what this means for us in the future, and we're walking through the story uh, whenever we, we do that. That is biblical, uh, that is biblical theology. But what we're going to be doing this summer is called systematic theology. It's a little bit different. And what this means is that we take the elements of the story and we break it down into segments so that we can look at it a bit more comprehensively. Uh, th- this book of Isaiah will help kind of explain the, the difference in the two, right? So I've told you guys a, a thousand times that, that Isaiah and our family, we, we, we watch Star Wars in our house. It's just kind of what we do. We're, we're Star Wars fans, especially Isaiah, big, big Star Wars fans. Well, there's two ways you can learn the Star Wars story, right? So if you're in here and you've never seen any of the Star Wars, then I could give you two ways that you could learn about Star Wars. One would be the most natural way. You go watch the movies, right? Go watch the movies, go watch the cartoons, go play the video games, and you will learn the full story of this universe, this world called Star Wars. You're, you're, you're doing it by learning the story. Right? That's typically what we do whenever we're studying the Bible. We're looking at the story as a whole. But there's another way that I could teach you about it, and you could learn a whole lot about it. And, and it would be with something like this. So th- this book here, uh, this, is, this is Lego Star Wars Encyclopedia. All right? So it's, it's based off of Lego characters, but it's all the Star Wars characters. And so what happens whenever you open this up, and you can tell this is a, a well-used copy here for, for Isaiah. I'm going to try not to tear it apart while I'm up here, because then I'll have something to answer to when I get home. But you can, you can open it up, and it's like, okay, w- what is this here? Well, this is a, this is a Wookiee warrior. Well, what's a, what's a Wookiee? If, you if you've not seen Star Wars, you have no idea what a Wookiee is. It's just a tall dog and you don't understand what is going on with with this with this thing that that makes all these weird noises right well you could open up this and you could read all kinds of stuff you could talk you could you could read what what cartoon or what movie they showed up in you can read what type of weapon they use you can read where they fit into the story you can read about how important they are in the story it breaks down all the details specifically related to that one character. Or you could turn it here, and I just happen to turn to uh, Darth Maul. Well, what's he? He's another character. He's a bad guy. It tells you he's a bad guy. It tells you what type of lightsaber he has. It tells you all kinds of different stuff like that, right? So that is a way that you can learn about Star Wars too. Now, if you don't know the story, then me reading all this stuff to you is not going to help you all that much. But if you know the story then you can open this up and you can start reading through stuff and you can say, oh, okay, well, I understand that now. Oh, yes, right, I remember where he was there and I see how he connects to this other person in the story. It kind of topically breaks it down. Now, this is by character, but there's other ways that you can look at it as well. In a really kind of rough way, that's how systematic theology works, okay? So what we're doing is not telling the full story. We're pulling pieces of the story out 
and then we will look at those pieces of the story, and then we will come back and we will say, all right, this is how those pieces inform the story. So it's a totally different way for you to listen to a sermon, because I'm not going uh, along a timeline from beginning to end as I preach. I'm not going to break down a text and say, this is exactly what this text is talking about, and here's where it's headed. Instead, I'm going to be able to pull from all kinds of different places. I'll be quoting a lot more people, uh, and I will be quoting a lot of different verses from all over the place. Because what I'm doing is I'm, I'm pulling all these different things that informs this topic that we're talking about. All right? So you guys tracking with me? It's a totally different way to do things. And you've got to know that up front because you've got to think a little bit differently, just like I've got to preach a little bit differently. And I'll be honest with you. Biblical theology is like writing with my right hand. That makes more sense to me. That's how I read the Bible. That's how things just kind of come naturally while I'm reading. Systematic theology does not come natural to me. I have to really work at that. So it's like writing left-handed. I have to really think about what I'm doing. I have to really think about looking at the text in a different way. Both are legitimate ways to study the Bible. Both are good ways. It's just one is how we typically do things here at, at Providence on a Sunday morning, and the other is a little bit different. So this is, this is the different approach that we're going, uh, that we're going to have during this, uh, during this time. So <clears throat> this, is, this is how, it, a, a good way to, to summarize it is, biblical theology is the story, systematic theology is topics. So we're going to be doing topics here. When I was a kid, this is one of the main ways that preaching was done. One of two ways, typically, either moralistically, in other words, they're going to lay out different things and say, this is the type of thing you need to do and you need to be this type of person. Or they would preach uh, in a way that was systematic and they would say, let's talk about everything the Bible says about this subject, about family, about marriage, about heaven, about hell, about angels, that kind of stuff. That's how I grew up listening to preaching. And I'm guessing that's probably how most of you uh, grew up. There's been a change in the way that that, that Bible study happens, uh, and Bible study kind of goes through these different phases in a, in a larger scale. and And preaching has shifted to tell the story uh, a little bit more. But this is how it was done mostly when I was a kid, especially in my my student group. This is how we would do Bible studies built around a topic, and so. This is, this is going to be normal for a lot of you guys, kind of what you were used to. And l let me give you an example of how this plays itself out. If you're saying, well, what, how come there's different ways to do this? Why don't we just do it one way? All right, let's just take one topic. I'm not going to get into it that deep because if I did, we'd be here. Well, we'd really never stop, right? Let's take the topic of the Trinity. Do you know that that word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible? Nowhere found at all. In fact, the idea of the Trinity, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is not in one text anywhere in Scripture, not explained in any way. But if you start pulling from, from one text here in Genesis and another text here in Hebrews and another text here in Corinthians and another one here in Philippians, and you, you start pulling all these different texts together, what you can build is the doctrine of the Trinity straight from Scripture. It's just not all contained in one Scripture. So, so without systematic theology, we, we wouldn't be able to articulate anything about the Trinity. But because of systematic theology, we can, right? So this is, this is how it works in a little bit of a different, uh, a different way for us. And so now that you've gotten that crash course in theology, 
Let's talk about a, a different thing here. Let's talk a little bit about God's attributes and the way that we study them. Because we want to make sure that we study these attributes correctly. Because even if we talk about the attributes of God, and even if we get a lot of it correctly, if we have some underlying assumptions about the way these attributes work, we can get way off kilter really, really quick. I have really enjoyed the Marvel film, so I'm going to switch. I'm moving from Star Wars to Marvel, right? So from one type of nerd to the other type of nerd. That's what we're going to talk about, right? So I fit both categories, I guess, but not, not completely a, a, as much as some of y'all out there. Um, so just out of curiosity, how many of you guys have seen a good chunk of the Marvel movies or seen at least a few of them? Show of hands, right? All right, so that's most of you. That's more than, than Star Wars, I guess, because it's more, uh, it's more recent. When they came up with the plan to build this Marvel Cinematic Universe, so we're talking about Iron Man, Thor, the Hulk, we're talking about the Avengers, all of this kind of stuff. When they came up with this, someone created a very entertaining and an enduring film and TV franchise. There is a ton of it. They also made a dump truck load of money whenever they did it. The box office revenue alone for the movies that have currently been released, box office revenue is over $22 billion just for those movies. That's with a B, $22 billion has been made on those Marvel movies. That's crazy. That is a lot of money. If you've seen those movies, you know that there's a rivalry within these movies between two of the Avengers. It's a friendly rivalry for the most part, but it's a rivalry between, between Thor and the Incredible Hulk, right? It's, it's, it's a rivalry between uh, these two guys, and, and, and the, the rivalry is basically who's the strongest Avenger? Who, who's the best? Who is the, 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 the most indestructible? And uh, these two kind of go at it because virtually they are both indestructible. Uh, Thor kind of has an advantage over all the other Avengers, though, because in this cinematic universe, Thor is not a man. Thor is a god, little g-o-d, right? He, he is a god, and so that gives him a, an advantage and a, a leg up on all the other Avengers. Uh, in, in Norse mythology, anyway, he is a god. And what we learn about Thor is, is that, really, he's a lot like us just stronger. He, he's a lot like us, just a little bit better, right? He, 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 he's generally like most, most other men. It's just he, he can like shoot lightning and he can fly as long as he has his hammer. He can do all of these different things, right? So he's a lot like us, just a little bit uh, better. But he still has faults and foibles. He can be angry. He can be impatient. He can be egotistical, lazy, distracted. He can be all of those things. Uh, he's really just like us. He can just shoot lightning from his eyes, which makes him a little bit uh, cooler. And this is how we tend to think about God. There's a picture of me whenever I played Thor uh, earlier in my, my career. Um, but this is how we, t we tend to think about God. M maybe, not, maybe not exactly, but this, this is how we tend to think about God. The same way that we think about Thor. Or that we think about maybe like a, a Greek God, like Zeus or Hermes or Athena or Nike, like you've heard of these Greek gods too, we, we tend to think about God in the, the same kind of way. Because each of those gods, each of the Greek gods were, 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 were something. They had a special ability. They were in charge of something. 
they had special responsibilities and powers and abilities and all of those things. And, and together, all of those responsibilities, they kind of took care of uh, the, the world. But really, the whole point in creating the Greek gods whenever they created them was to be able to tell stories that had morals attached to them. And you could learn lessons uh, about how to be a better person because of what happened among these Greek gods. And it can be easy to transport that idea unintentionally over to, uh, in, in a small way, the way that we view God, capital G-O-D, the God. Now, maybe we would say it a little bit different, but we, we would have, uh, you know, it can be easy for us to say, well, you know what, the, the Greeks had all those little G-O-D-S, all those little gods, we have one big one, so it took, it took all their gods to cover everything, their full pantheon to cover all the world. It doesn't take all that for us, it just takes one god. So he's better than all the other gods because it just takes one instead of a whole group of them. He's just better than theirs were. And what happens is we begin to see God the same way that we see Thor, that he's kind of like us, just better. God's like us, he's just better. We'll give him credit, but all in all, we're pretty similar. He's just bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, better. But he's pretty much like us. And what I want to drive home this morning is that we need to repent of that view of God. Now, I don't think any of us are confusing Thor with God. Don't hear me wrong, but I do think our tendency is to try to conceive of God in similar terms. To limit ourselves and our view of God to things that we can relate to, to things that we can kind of categorize, to things that we can, we can really set up and say, oh, I understand that because I'm kind of like that. I just mess up, and God's really like that, and he doesn't mess up. But that is an insufficient and a very low view of God. We will inevitably be wrong if we begin with that idea we cannot define god by what we know and by who we are we have to define him on his terms and what the bible says do you remember miriam's song back in the book of exodus right after they had crossed over the red sea miriam leads the people of israel in song and do you remember what she said in exodus chapter 15 she said, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And just like the refrain from the psalmist, the answer that comes back is a resounding, there is no one like you, God. There is no, not just no one like you because you're better than everyone, God. There's no one like you because you are utterly different than anything else we know, God. The flip side of this would be Genesis chapter 3. So if you're in Genesis 3, you can open up there. Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember what the sin was that Adam and Eve committed? They ate the fruit, right? But, but what was it that the fruit promised them? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat? of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be 
like God, knowing good and evil. The promise was that they would be like God. It's a promise Satan cannot deliver on. It's a promise that is empty, that is veiled in all kinds of half-truths and, 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 uh, and in empty, empty promises there. But the sin was rooted in their desire to be like God. And it is the same sin that we fall to often to today. We often want to be like God. But instead of even us trying to rise up to Him, the way that we try to be like God is that we try to bring Him down to us. We don't make ourselves like Him. We try to make Him like us. Both approaches are wrong. Our task is to take God at His word and examine what He has given us. What this means is that there are times where we are called to be like God. We are told to be holy as He is holy, that God is love and that we are to love, that God is good, is the God of righteousness, and we too are called to be righteous. But God is also omnipresent. He is everywhere. Omniscient. He knows all. Eternal. He has no end and no beginning. Self-sustaining. He needs nothing. He is immutable. He is unchanging. We are none of those things. And if we try to compare ourselves to God and say, well, God is kind of like us, just a little bit different, then we will not see God as majestic and as grand as he is. And not only are we none of those things, we are incapable of being those things. There are a lot of ways we can look at the nature of God and who he is we can, there's a lot of ways we can look at it and how it relates to us as humans, but if we limit ourselves to the nature of who God is and how it relates to us as humans, then we are limiting God. Because God is who He is regardless of how it relates to us. And so we must take a look at God and follow and listen to what He has to teach us. The greater task is to see him for who he is and then let that majesty wreck us in comparison with us, his finite creatures. In the end, he is the creator, we are the creatures, and he has things that we will never have and we cannot. Some things we will share with him, others we do not. We don't have the capability. So we'll talk about this, these attributes in, in two ways. There's all kinds of different ways to sort them out, but we're going to talk about them in two ways. And I'll tell you, uh, these two books are super, super helpful. These are by uh, Jen Wilkin. Wilkin. Uh, one is called None Like Him, and one is called In His Image. This one, None Like Him, is about the incommunicable attributes of God. I know it's a big word. It just means the, the attributes of God that we don't share. This one, In His Image, means uh, this is about the attributes of God that he calls to and that we are called to share guys don't don't be misled by the flowers on the front read these books i don't care that they're written by a woman and i don't i don't care if you think that they're written for women these are great books read these books if you have to rip the cover off go ahead and and that's fine these are great great books and i'm going to try to put forward several resources for you guys as we go throughout this series because there are some good ones so communicable versus incommunicable attributes. And I'm proud that I got both of those out. 
Or you could say unique attributes of God versus the moral attributes of God that we are called to. And this is what uh, we're going to talk about. So what, what would fit in the moral attributes or the communicable ones? This would be things like wisdom, mercy, love, grace, righteousness, holiness, things that we are called to and we are called to reflect. Now, in our sinful state, we cannot reflect these back correctly. Uh, we cannot reflect these back perfectly. They are diminished in our sinful state. They are tarnished. They are incomplete because we are at war with ourselves. And often what we find is that these characteristics are at war within us. That, that what happens within us is that these characteristics are set against one another. We can't sort out whether we should be gracious and merciful or whether we should be righteous and holy. We can't parse the difference between wisdom and patience and fear and timidity. We, we don't know how to push one at the, these wax and wane within us. At some point, sometimes we, we feel super bold and we feel very gracious and loving. And other times we can't seem to muster that grace. All we can feel is anger. These are attributes that are shared in us, but imperfectly and often in competition with one another. Incommunicable attributes are the ones that only the Creator can possess. Only the Creator can possess. And that if there were any other being to share these attributes, God would no longer be God. He alone has them. There cannot be two all-powerful beings. If there is, then one of them is not all-powerful. Or both of them are not all-powerful. There can only be one. He does not share them with his creation. We will focus most of our summer on these, the incommunicable attributes of God, the ones he does not share with us, the ones that are true of God alone. But we won't limit ourselves either. And in fact, it's literally impossible to limit yourself when you talk about God's nature and his attributes. The way his attributes work, he is all his attributes all the time. Now, you're going to have to hang with me here because we're getting ready to, to kind of think through some things. But I promise you, if you can get with me through some of this, it will be helpful for you. He is all his attributes all the time. God is all that he is all the time. And this is what I want to talk about the rest of this morning. I want to look at this idea. And the idea is, 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 is pretty simple, but it's profound all at the same time. Here is the first attribute that we will study. God is simple. God is simple. And whenever you first hear that, you're probably like, what are you talking about? I could study God for the rest of my life and not even begin to scratch the depths of who God is. So don't, don't get lost in that word simple. It's not doesn't mean that God uh, isn't, isn't mysterious. What it means whenever we say God is uh, simple Whenever we say that, what it means is that he is not made up of parts. He is completely whole. Even existing eternally as the Trinity, he is always whole. Now, that's, I realize that's a bit philosophical sounding, but I think we can work through this, and there's some great applications uh, for us. Are any of you guys in here Food Network fans? Any of y'all watch Food Network a lot? 
There's a handful of you, not, not many. We used to be big Food Network fans before uh, Emily's diet stuff kind of went sideways, and then that just became torture for her. So we quit watching the Food uh, Network. We, we don't really watch that uh, anymore, but we used to watch it uh, a lot. We've seen uh, plenty of it. We've got our, our feel. We loved watching Iron Chef and, and all, all these like cooking contests that they would have. And one of the things that comes up in these cooking competition shows is that they always want to, to give the judges the perfect bite. And what they mean whenever they say the perfect bite is they want to make sure that if a a judge bites into a dish that he doesn't get a piece of the dish that's missing other pieces of the dish. Does that make sense? So you want to make sure that all of the dish is is contained within that bite. Because if not, you might be missing something, a, a piece of flavor, a sweetness, or a saltiness that is present in the rest but not in the bite that you uh, that you give them. And so uh, what they're trying to do is just make sure that something critical doesn't get left out. They want to make sure that all of the, the elements of the dish are contained within one bite. Now, I grew up in the South, and so my thought is, well, then that's why you make a casserole. That's what you do, right? You make sure that you get the whole bite in one little thing because the entire pan is going to taste exactly the same wherever you get it from, right? But that, they don't really do casseroles on the Food Network. Um, take that for, for what it's worth. They're missing out. Um, the opposite of that would be, would be if you eat a, a meal with multiple sides uh, and, and no food can be touching. Are any of you guys like that, show of hands? Any of y'all are the like regimented plates where you cannot have your food touching at all? Yeah, all right. So there's, there's a couple. There's not, I thought there'd be more because I hear about you crazies all the time. Um, that you, you, you have to eat like one thing at a time. So you eat all your mashed potatoes before you move on to all your mac and cheese before you move on to all of your, your chicken or whatever it is that you're eating. You have to do it like in some sort of crazy order that works out in your head for some reason. Um, that, that would be the difference, right? So you're not getting a perfect bite. In fact, you're getting every single element one at a time, different, different ways. Uh, and here's, here's what I want to tell you. Both of those pictures, you need to get ready for this for the summer. I'm going to spend most of the summer telling you what God is not in order to somehow figure out what God is because that's just the only way that really works in our heads, I think. Um, But both of those pictures, the perfect bite, the casserole, and the completely divided up plate where you get one piece at a time, both of those are really bad ways to look at who God is. They don't work for the nature of who God is. That's not how his attributes work. They don't work as individual traits like we would think of personality traits that we have. God does not have personality traits. That's not what we're talking about. They don't act as pieces that make up a whole. God doesn't have pieces. He is all of his attributes, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, all the time. He is all of his attributes. Let let me give you a different example of what God uh, is not. So my phone is right there. I've been talking to my phone. It's broadcasting all around the world using satellites and all this other stuff. I don't understand how it all works, but it's a phone. It's amazingly complicated. It has way, way more computing power than what got men to the moon, right? It's got all kinds of uh, amazing things, and it's got all kinds of little parts in it. It's got a ton of them. It's got the, the uh, aluminum body. It's got a screen. It's got a processor. It's got multiple 
cameras, it's got speakers, it's got a battery, it's got so many different things. But see, the thing is, if I hand you that phone with nothing inside of it, it may look like a phone, but it's not a phone if it doesn't have all the parts inside of it, right? It may look like it, but it's not. It requires all the parts for it to be uh, a phone, to be an iPhone. The battery isn't the phone. The screen isn't the phone. The body isn't the phone. The processor isn't the phone. Without those pieces, the phone isn't the phone. It needs all of the pieces to become what it is. But the pieces individually have to be grouped together to become that. So they become something more than themselves, right? Does that make sense? You have to have all the pieces together for the phone to become the phone. God isn't that way either. That's not how God works. He's not in parts. All of God is all of God all the time. So let me tell you how that works out. Here's what I mean. You don't take God's love, his omniscience, his mercy, his wrath, his omnipotence, and kind of put them in a blender and say, all right, here they are all together. And then you say, now I have God. That's not the way that he works. God is all of those things all the time. And because he is all of those things all the time, he is never in, his, his attributes are never in competition with one another. They're never in conflict with one another. And they're never lying dormant and kind of waxing and waning. And sometimes they're really, really high. And other times he decides to just hide those and put those away. He doesn't lay aside his wrath in order to exercise his love. He doesn't lay aside his omniscience in order to exercise his graciousness. He is gracious and all-knowing at all times. They are never in conflict or at war. And that happens. That happens to us. Remember we said that a few minutes ago. That happens to us because we are in parts. We are at war with ourselves. Our traits don't always express themselves as fully at sometimes as they do at other times. God does not suffer from this problem. This is the simplicity of God. This is what we mean whenever we say this. He is one. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That is a statement of monotheism, but that is also a statement of the nature of who God is. He does not possess his qualities that make him who he is. He is those qualities. Do you see the difference in that? He does not possess them like character traits. He is them. God is love. He is grace. He is mercy. He is patience. He is all-knowing. He is each of those things. He doesn't have them. He is them. Here's how A.W. Tozer says this. Love, for instance, is not something God has and which may grow or diminish or cease to be. His love is the way God is. And when he loves, he is simply being himself. His patience never runs out. That is a blessing, is it not? So you, 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 don't, you don't get to a, a, a rough stretch of six months where you have just been 
completely derailed and not following God the way that you should be and think his patience has run out with me because I know my patience would have run out with my kids. His patience does not run out. It is who he is at all times. It never goes away. Turn with me to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. I want to do something here. I want you guys to uh, echo with me here. So uh, if you see this on the screen, uh, you see the second refrain there. It says, for his steadfast love endures forever. I'm going to read, and I want you to read that part. And we're going to go through nine verses of it. There's uh, 26 verses in this psalm, and I thought about reading them all, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to do the first nine. And I just want you to hear what this says over and over. So I'm going to read the first ra- the refrain. You guys read the second refrain. That's called responsive reading, sort of. Um, we don't do that a lot around here, but maybe we should do it more. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him alone, to him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night, and on and on we could go for the next 26 verses in that song. His love endures forever. It doesn't wax and wane. And why does it endure forever? Because God is love. It is who he is. So before we can talk about the attributes of God, we've got to know how those attributes work together. And the way that they work together is that he is all of them all of the time. And so we'll start talking about some of these other attributes as we keep going this summer. But we have to begin there. He doesn't pit part of himself against another part of himself because he doesn't have parts. He is all God all the time. And everything that God is, is everything that God is all the time. It's important that we get this right. The way one, uh, one teacher says this is, the fact that God is not made of parts is a glorious truth for us. It gives us confidence in him. Because if he is made of parts, or if he is not made of parts, he cannot fall apart. Man can and will fall apart. God will never fall apart. We must get this right because it is part of what separates God from man, creator from creature. It should awaken us to some sense of awe and majesty as to who he is. It should cause us to leap with joy and shudder with fear at how different he is. He is not like us. In the classic Christian book, Confessions, Uh, Augustine observes this with this great quote. I could read a lot more of this quote, but I'm going to limit it to this. But man, this this is good. This is how Augustine says this and, and, and talks about the way in which God works. Most high, most excellent, most powerful, most omnipotent, most piteous and most just, most hidden and most near, 
most beautiful and most strong, stable, yet contained by none, unchangeable, yet changing all things, never new, never old, making all things new, yet bringing old age upon the proud without their knowing it, always working, yet ever at rest, gathering, yet needing nothing, sustaining, pervading, and protecting, creating, nourishing, and developing, seeking, and yet possessing all things. You love, yet you do not burn, are jealous, yet free from care. You repent, yet you do not suffer regret, are angry, yet serene. You change your ways, leaving your plans unchanged. I love that. You change your ways, leaving your plans unchanged. You recover what you find without, without ever having lost it. You are never in want while you rejoice in gain. You pay debts while owing nothing. And when you forgive debts, you lose nothing. Do you hear the doxology in Augustine's voice? The praise in Augustine's voice? The wonder in his voice? When was the last time you prayed like that? When was the last time that you prayed like Augustine? Have you ever prayed like that? Friends, this is the task for us this morning, to see God not as like us, but like no other, and to let our hearts burn with wonder at who He is and the way He works, and to think of something that is unthinkable, to comprehend something that is incomprehensible. I love that last line in Augustine's prayer. You paid debts while owing nothing. I hope that makes you smile this morning. Because if you are a Christian, it was your debt that was paid. The same God came to earth in order to save you if you would follow Him. He calls out to you. He longs for you to know Him. I'm going to close with one more quote from uh, J.I. Packer from his book, Knowing God. There is great incentive to worship and to love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. We cannot work these thoughts out here, but merely to mention them is enough to show how much it means to know not merely that we know God, but that He knows us. The God incomprehensible, the God who is not like us, the God who gives us His Word, who gives us His Spirit, who works in our hearts, this God says, here, you can know this much about me, but I want to know you, and I will know you. Friends, He owes nothing, but he has paid a debt. This is what it means to be a Christian. When you hear that prayer from Augustine, as I read that prayer from Augustine, my heart longs to to, to have the proper view of God that I I would speak with such wonder of who he is. And I fall so short of that so often. This morning, our... Our beginning of knowing God is to both fear Him and to know His Son who has relieved our debt. What a great promise we have. What a great God we have. And I hope you guys will be with me the rest of this summer as we start to 
get to know this God just a little bit better. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that we can know anything of you. Father, we confess our ignorance. Ignorance to the things that we cannot know, but also ignorance to the things that you have revealed, but we do not know. Father, we do not pretend to understand all of you. But we do want to know more of you. Father, stir our hearts, stir our affections, so that we do not learn new things and file them away as pieces of information, but that our hearts are set ablaze to worship you anew. In Christ's name we pray.